0: Everything's bigger in Texas, including climate change. That's why Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world are gathering to work with titans of industry to build the technology that will reduce emissions and power a low-carbon future.
1: We sit down with those changemakers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us. As we talk with the leaders of the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done.
0: I'm Laura Cottingham, and this is the Energy Technology Podcast.
1: And I'm Jason Ettier. Let's jump in. Here we are today with Amran uh, Bengio and Olivia S.B. Huntington of Wootz. Uh, they also have a third co founder, Alex Marks, who didn't make it here today with us. But Wootz is a Texas based advanced materials startup that manufactures carbon and nanotube su- super materials. These innovative materials have wide ranging applications, particularly in the energy space where Wootz is exploring use cases and harvesting energy, flexible solar cells, and EV motors. I'm very excited about EV motors. So tell me about the EV motors piece that you're working on.
2: Absolutely. Um, So electrification in, in the EV space is really, really taxing the world's copper supply and processing capabilities. Um, we're also living you know, in a geopolitical atmosphere where relations with China are mm. maybe uh, in a tense place, and China is responsible for processing and refining over half of the world's copper. They don't supply half of it, but they do process over half of it, and you need copper in its refined state or processed state in order to make EV motor coils. That's really the part of EV motors that we're going after, and we're looking at it from the point of view of what can we do to make copper better? And we believe that with our carbon nanotube technology, if properly alloyed with copper, you can have an EV motor that is lighter, has a higher ampacity, namely a higher ability to carry current. And generally, if you're displacing copper, it mitigates some of the climate impact associated with the extraction and refining of said metal. Oh
1: my gosh, my inner like materials nerd just went off, because I heard you say like alloying copper. And I was thinking to myself, a nanotube is like a stringy thing, but usually copper is, or metals are a crystally thing. So tell me, like, what's going on there
2: when you when when you mean alloying? Yeah, that's that's an excellent question. There's a whole class of materials called uh, metal matrix composites, and that's where this fits in specifically continuous fiber reinforced metal matrix composites. A good example of a way this is done is actually also in the energy space and overhead transmission lines, mm-hmm. where folks have taken to reinforcing aluminum with things like ceramic fiber, carbon fiber, in order to overcome some of the issues associated with running these metals at high temperatures for extended periods of time. Namely, metals, unlike carbon, when you heat them up, they expand. And so the shape that you had in mind and designed around for your conductor that it starts at suddenly is no longer the shape that it has when you're running, say, at emergency, you know, transmission line uh, amperage load. So, that, that's the material subset we fit in continuous fiber reinforced metal matrix composites. Alloing. Kind of a, kind of a mouthful, but yeah.
3: Alloying mm-hmm. is a lot easier to say. So, yeah. I get that.
0: Continuous fiber reinforced metal matrix, metal matrix composites. All right. So, yeah. so, Jason's inner materials nerd is coming out, and I'm just excited to say the word woots, right? <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: People not, cheer for us.
0: Right, I know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's nice. Um, so, coming from a policy world and I am always just amazed by entrepreneurs and like how you came up with this. So can you um, explain to me from from the very like ABCs, how did you guys get started? How did you get into carbon nanotubules? Like where did it – what's the origin? What was that like?
2: We're so really standing on the on the shoulders of giants. I mean, I, I did my PhD at Rice University, which has a long-standing history of developing and characterizing ad, advanced forms of carbons. It began with Rick Smalley uh, with the you know C60 uh, Buckminster fullerene's molecule, and Rice had some of the very first gen. Uh, they're called HIPCo reactors because those high-pressure carbon monoxide reactors for making carbon nanotubes. So I came into this space, you know, rosy-eyed and bushy-tailed, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. So you
0: just woke (laughs) up and you're like, I want to be in carbon nanotubes.
2: No. So actually, okay, so personal twist on the story, I've always been fascinated with the world of the very small. When I was an undergrad, I was doing high-energy particle physics. Uh, I worked at CERN for one summer. And then after my physics undergrad, it was sort of like, I was at a crossroads, right? Wasn't sure what I wanted to do next. Ended up spending a year in Israel working in a research lab for free. And it was just happenstance that that lab was doing electron microscopy analysis of carbon nanotubes that came from rice. Hmm. And when I was tasked with doing some of that imaging, I look at this stuff and I was like, hang on, this is actually carbon? Mm -hmm. Like this, this stuff which conducts electricity like a metal that handles like a textile fiber that is lightweight, chemically resistant, that is just carbon, right? And it was like, pinch me please because i can't believe that the, that i'm awake um and that really was the the impetus just seeing the material under a microscope at the nanoscale but then also being able to touch it to feel it to see the macroscopic properties i was like i got to help advance this however i can mm-hmm. i so love it i love it went back to rise for the phd yeah how
0: did your team how how did you uh call the Avengers together how how did you get started
2: um so after the PhD, I, I did admittedly become a little bit disillusioned in academia just because there's a lot of hurdles that you have to overcome, which the academic mindset where, you know, you're, you're trying to do innovation in the scientific sense, not in the commercially enabling sense. And that is a huge, hugely different perspective to take. So i once we reached once I reached the end of my PhD I figured the best way to get this out into the real world was to start a company and I knew that I needed perspectives very very different from my own so I approached a friend of mine undergrad who we were we were roommates through undergrad uh, who was a mechanical engineer and by that point had spent 8 years working out in industry as a senior manufacturing engineer that would be Alex Marks along with a third co-founder Justin who Alex says is an amazing line technician and operator um, uh, at a you know the, the different manufacturing companies that he worked with. That team of three got started. and Olivia joined us. Um, I, I'll let Olivia speak to you know as to why what Drew Hooter Wootz actually.
3: I think it's that I, I've always been fascinated by the space of deep like deep tech space in general. Um, I think I'm an engineer at heart and I just missed my calling early on. And by that point, you know, I was a lawyer. I'd put too much time and money into my career and Mm -hmm. I couldn't really imagine going back and and starting from scratch. But I did know that I had the skill set to take genius and bring it out into the real world. So take it out of the lab and bring it into the real world and make it available to humanity at large. And I think that all of us are first principle builders in our own way. And we each come to Wootz because we, we want something out of this business, out of our material. So we want to make it, we want it to be widely distributed. We want it to be used. We want to mm-hmm. be able to pick up a product off a shelf or drive a car that incorporates our materials and know that we have made our mark in the world and that we have left the world a better place when we're done. Um, and I think that's really important to all of us from our own you know, individual perspectives.
1: Oh, I have such a trick question to ask you now, like, were you getting that in your prior career as a lawyer? And and are you still lawyering now in in your new role?
3: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, those are tough questions here. Um, Just put me on the spot a little bit. I I would say that by and large, as an M&A attorney Mm -hmm. in the deep tech space, I was. Mm -hmm. I mean, I was helping my clients bring their products to Mm -hmm. market, grow their business, make their exits. Mm -hmm. Um, but I was ancillary, mm. right? I would kind of parachute in, I'd help them with a particular project or a particular transaction, and then I'd be gone and I'd watch them from afar. And I think that I was really over time, I wanted to be in it. I wanted mm. to be in the day-to-day grind. I wanted to to have a small team that was aligned and focused and passionate and motivated. And that's, that's really hard to do uh, when you're parachuting in and out of these deals constantly. Um, so I... I think it took me about two years to start to feel that, mm. uh, think about it, evaluate the risks, and come to terms with the fact that I was going to lose most of my income for a while, and then I made the the jump to woods
1: mm, It's a big jump.
3: So I want
0: to go back to what you talked about when you were a research researcher researching. Right, you're so kind of in the university setting, mm-hmm. and that you. Uh, had a had a choice, like do you continue the more academic route or do you commercialize? And to me, this is really interesting. If you think about Texas, we have amazing research institutions. So much money is coming to our schools. Yep. I'm I'm pointing at you, University mm-hmm. of Texas, Texas A&M, which I think is is it often the largest university in the country. Um, you got U of H, you've got Rice, more and more and more. And um, but then you look at the number of Climate tech energy transition startups coming straight out of university it's not that many compared to the size because it's hard right mm-hmm. um and it's a challenge for universities everywhere. It's a challenge for students. I'm interested how we can try to accelerate that whole process. What was it like for you? what was challenging, and what did you find like how did you decide I do want to like break out
2: that's that's a very that's a very good question um I would say that the the hardest part is changing from your 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 parameters for success are completely different, right? Whereas previously in academia, you know, everyone who's done built their career and a successful career in academia knows it's about publishing, 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 right? It's the paper publication race. That is your metric for success. The higher impact factor journal, the better, right? Mm-hmm. And to get those papers, you need to have Results and methods that are that stand out above above the rest, whether those methods are actually commercially enabling or scalable is not within the purview of an academic paper. It is a bonus for sure, and authors will make a point to highlight scalability when they publish, but you can still get uh you know in a tier one journal like Science or Nature with something that relies on You know days or even weeks of ultra centrifugation right Mm -hmm. as a process step for example um so because a lot of people who built their career in academia do not have necessarily industry background at least that's not there are exceptions right but that's not the rule usually um we don't have that perspective when we're in academia to radically rethink about how to make a process scalable and that's because people who are you know, doing mechanical engineering or manufacturing are not in academia. I think one of the big issues that we need is we need to have more applied research institutes where both industries and academia come to work on common topics. Um, because yes. it can't be done just in industry, at least it is being done, but obviously, You know, we're talking about taking innovation from academia and it does start in the lab, right? Into industry, there needs to be a halfway point, right? Um, We definitely would have loved to have such a halfway point between Mm
0: -hmm.
3: the
2: academia and the startup that we're in now um, because you you need the industrial and scalability perspective.
3: I think this is my favorite part of joining a startup, honestly, is to watch Amram and Alex. feed off of each other, mm-hmm. you know, uh, the whole is greater than its parts with them. Um, and it's like, I, I, I get to watch it live, like in real time as they're sitting and they're talking back and forth. And Alex is coming with his perspective and Amram's coming with his perspective. And I'm just watching this kind of idea grow. Um, and, and it's a beautiful thing. And I And I think that while Obviously, we are not engaged in research a la academic research, right? We are constantly in a state of Mm R&D. And I don't really see this changing over the future because, you know, we are just scratching the surface of what is possible with carbon nanotubes uh, in light of our process. And there is so much more there for us to explore and so many other benefits that we can bring to bear. And a lot of that comes from this kind of spark of creativity that you get when you put Different people in a room together.
1: So let's talk about uh, you're going to say something. Just a huge thank you for the shout out.
3: (laughs) (laughs) So so let's talk about the technology
1: for a little bit. So it's it's carbon nanotubes, but uh, I assume all carbon nanotubes are not created equal.
2: And that is kind of the root of your technology. That is very, very correct. Mm -hmm. Um, To give you a sense of just how broad the spectrum is you can look at carbon nanotube price points per kilogram in the market today and go all the way down to, you know, maybe $100 per kilogram and all the way up to $80,000 per kilogram. <laughs> Sorry, that, that was, that's a big number. That is yeah. a big number, right? <laughs> and,
3: <laughs> it's, been, it's heart-stopping.
2: And that's not even accounting for, you know, the crazier, more even more niche, like chirality-type purified carbon nanotubes. So nanotubes come in mm-hmm. all different shapes and sizes. I just touched on price point. But you actually have, you know, a lot of different kinds of carbon nanotubes beyond just how many walls they have, right? You have single wall, double wall, mm. triple wall, and beyond that, we just call them multi-wall. Mm. You also have two-thirds of them are semiconductors and about a third are metallic.
3: They also come from different sources as well. Yes. which really yeah. We are really leveraging that to up our, our climate impact mm-hmm. here because, you know... You can have carbon nanotubes from non-sustainable sources such as oil, but you can also have them from um, biochar and methane – derived carbon nanotubes through different processes. And these are becoming more and more available in the United States as research out of the national labs pushes this forward. And we're really excited to see the possibilities that open in the next couple of years for us to really be using sustainably sourced carbon nanotubes in our process.
1: All right. So I'm going to unpack a few things. So when I think carbon nanotubes, and this is a terrible thought, I think of carbon spaghetti. But what you're describing (laughs) for me is not that. Like, There's actually a whole class of materials here uh, you were talking about how they're single and double walled. so I'm assuming there's a structure that actually makes a tube, right? like it's it's like it's got an inside and an outside. it's got a thickness. yeah, um, and then I also and 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 so there's there's a diameter to it, I guess that that's a more than an atom thick. like we're talking about um real dimensionality here. um, but we're also talking about uh, that there are different um. Uh, Uh, Materials within the carbon, right? So it sounds like there's some doping that's involved where you can make it metallic or make it more like a semiconductor Is that where that comes from or no, it's still
2: it's still all carbon It has to do with so if you think of the so the tubular structure is absolutely right Mm -hmm. now If you think of you know unwrap unzip the carbon nanotube Mm -hmm. in in your mind and put it on a 2d surface It would be a sheet of graphene, Mm. right? Now if you take that sheet of graphene and you bring it together into a tube, you can do that a number of different ways um like I think a piece of paper here, you can wrap it corner to mm-hmm. corner like that, mm-hmm. or you can add a little bit of twist to it as hmm. you wrap it. That by itself, with hmm. all the atoms still just being carbon, is responsible for that wide variety of um, electrical and electro-optical properties, really, in the carbon nanotubes. That's magic. That's
1: pretty right. Cool. <laughs> it is magic.
3: It is absolutely magic. And then we are able to tweak it a little bit as it goes through our process. So we're able to kind of oomph up some of its properties as a result of the nature of the process through which we put you know the raw carbon nanotubes to get them into a lined densely packed Mm -hmm. uh circular you know form
1: yeah that tube structure and so Mm -hmm. a a lot of the differentiation is is the quality or the the repeatability of the tubes you manufacture because you're not making one you're making I imagine millions at a time. We're actually
2: not making the carbon nanotubes ourselves. Okay, we buy carbon nanotubes from suppliers, mm-hmm. um, and so we buy them. Uh, again, we probe that entire you know spectrum of the market that I mentioned. Yes, even sometimes going up to some mm. of those ten thousand dollar <laughs> a kilogram type mm. tubes because they do have a part to play, even in small quantities, to make something that is still commercially viable. Mm. Some some niche applications do require that level of performance.
3: Yeah, what um, really sets us apart um, from others in this space is that because we purify our materials before they ever go into our process, we're able to buy carbon nanotubes from across the spectrum. Hmm. And then we create tailored custom blends. So if you are thinking of a particular application and you're really looking for certain properties, right, our properties, you can almost think of them as being tunable. So you can dial them up or dial them mm-hmm. down depending on the composition of the blend of carbon nanotubes that we start with. Mm-hmm. And this is really what sets us apart and it's also what allows us to, you know, start incorporate more sustainably sourced carbon nanotubes over time rather than having to do it, you know, we can do it stepwise as opposed to from one day having nothing and the next day having 100%. So can you talk me through your business model then? Like, What would your ideal customer
0: be that you are um, purifying and tweaking the product to provide them? How does that interaction work?
2: Yeah. There's, there's two fronts really. I mean, on the one hand, you know, we provide coding services where, because we're processing carbon nanotubes in a fluid state, we're able to take substrates or even, you know, sorry, materials and devices from, from a partner and coat it with carbon nanotubes, right. With some modifications to make sure there's material compatibility. Um, in another scenario, another part of the model, it's literally just, you know, sales. I mean, you know, we. Cell, cell carbon nanotube tape, carbon nanotube fibers. There's these different product forms with some post-processing on top of it that is application specific usually. Mm-hmm. And that's really one of the first big hurdles that we faced was, okay, people almost always want our material for use in an electrical application, right? Something that requires electrical conductivity. Mm-hmm. How do you interface between decades of modern Circuitry design based on metals and this carbon based material. A little bit of material science metals do not wet carbon. Mm-hmm. There is no mechanism for huh. chemical bond formation mm-hmm. unless you form what's known as a metal carbide. At that point, you can create a bond between the two, but that comes at the cost of a much higher resistance. Mm-hmm. Metal carbides are usually a lot less conducting than the pure form of the metal. And so that was one of the first big problems we faced, right? It was like, can we provide a turnkey solution for all of our partners across all these different industries for how to interface between carbon nanotubes and metal Mm -hmm. circuitry components.
3: So to just to, to, I guess, go a little bit higher level, right? For the, for the non-technically minded folks Mm -hmm. in the audience, right? Myself (laughs) included and Laura, I see you over there. So, so we, we, our business is a manufacturing model. Um, but it's really, uh, customer-focused optionality, Mm. right? So what our customers want is what we aim to provide them with. And those wants are going to change over time. And our process allows for that. So when Amram, you know, first approached me and I was, you know, outside counsel for Wootz and he was trying to explain this very complicated process to me, the way that I was able to kind of like simplify it and internalize it was if you do not have proper physical conditioning, you are never going to be a great athlete. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. It's, a, it's a it's a necessary component. And uh, the, our first purification step is our physical conditioning. It's what takes these raw carbon nanotubes and puts them into a form that is usable in our process. Right? And then we make, we, we put them into a fluid phase, um, which is just a fancy way of saying that we convert them into fluids mm-hmm. so when Amram was talking about the coatings we call those our inks mm-hmm. right and if I were to give you a vial of them they would they would look like ink out of a pen you wouldn't be able to distinguish it and and they behave as inks as well so that's how we are able to coat um, using a number of different processes and then on the higher concentration end we call those our spin dopes and those are what we use to extrude our fibers and up until like once you have those vials of fluid right the rest of the process, is standard industrial manufacturing process for coatings and fiber extrusion, right? So all the magic happens in the first part, in the purification and the formation of of these fluids. And the rest of it is standard. And the the reason that that is so beneficial to us is that it allows us to interface with our partners' uh, existing manufacturing setups, right? So they don't really have to tweak their lines. They don't have to tweak their mm-hmm. processes to incorporate our materials. And then on top of that, as Amram was saying, you know, we have spent a lot of time trying to make this a turnkey solution to uh, drive adoption, right? In a new material, people need to mm-hmm. want to use this material and the easier it is to integrate it into their products, the more likely they are to adopt it. And so we have spent quite a lot of time going back to the R&D aspect that we talked about before of, of working through the complications of connecting a carbon system to modern industrial circuitry.
1: I'm, I'm thinking and I'm, I'm hearing that there's a lot of tailoring uh, to, to the customer need. And there's a part of me that wonders if material technology is always like this or is this a more recent development that, that comes from your expertise? Like kind of the question behind this is why didn't this exist 10 years ago? In carbon nanotubes? Just, yeah, generally. I I know very little about material sciences. So, like, when I hear this kind of tailoring, I keep thinking, oh, Mm -hmm. it's more magic. Like, you're waving a (laughs) wand (laughs) here. That
3: I can answer. Yeah. Go ahead. I can answer that one and then hand it it off to you. So, the reason that we tailor it today is to drive adoption. Mm. Right? People... It's 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 the reason you stage a house when you go to sell a house, right? It's very hard to imagine a life inside an empty house. It is much easier to imagine a life in a staged house, Mm -hmm. right? And we're trying to do the same thing. So, customers who might not intuitively know how to incorporate our material and get as much value out of our material, right? If they come to us and they say our problem is X, and we say here's a solution for you, mm-hmm. right? They're much more likely to mm-hmm. adopt it. And that necessarily involves a level of tailoring so, to their particular application or their particular product. But we, as a business, you know, speaking as a business person here and wanting to make this a, you know, something massive, ultimately we are looking to move into the wholesale market. So yeah. this tailoring is 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 an early part of our business mm-hmm. model. Whether it will stay the main feature of our business model is really up, for, up, you know who knows
2: at this point. I, I would say it'll always be a feature, not certainly not a a, a main feature like it is today. Um, but you know because it's early days. But if you look, for example, at the the plastics industry, everyone talks about polymer master batches, right? We all they always have different grades of the same molecule, right? If it's polyethylene, you've got low molecular weight, mm-hmm. high molecular weight, um, and and that confers different. Properties to the the the, the products uh, that are made from it, so that tailoring will probably always be a feature. But to the extent that we are doing it today, probably not. Right now, it's really because you know who is you who is out there using carbon nanotube macro materials, right? Not a whole lot of people, mm-hmm. um, and so getting getting industry familiar with it. Here's a, a very good example. We tout flexibility as a huge boon, right? as as a cool property because when you handle the fiber it feels like a thread, right? Okay, all conductors that we use today are mostly rigid. Sure copper is soft and bendable, but it's not like a textile, right? So now you have to show the customer how to adapt their system which was designed around rigid wires, right? Mm-hmm. Or at you know maybe slightly bendable, you know, ductile copper wires and adapt that to work with something that handles more like a textile. From a technical standpoint, you're definitely thinking it's an advantage. From a commercialization standpoint, it's just that much further from what the customer is used to.
1: Okay. And so like, from an innovation academic perspective, it's a reflection of like, where the market development is, right? Like you guys are, are, are seeing that the, the market has moved from like the super early adopters to kind of this early adopter phase where people are saying, yeah, I think there's value. You gotta show me how this works but you see kind of on the horizon that you're going to hit an early majority, like within the life cycle of Woots, And so you're, you're kind of training the market, you're mm-hmm. educating them. And that's, that's kind of the unfair advantage that will let you win in the marketplace. But, but what really opens the door is when people say, okay, I know how to deal with this now. This stuff's awesome. I exactly. and everything. Exactly. Well, we would call
3: it a fair advantage, right? We spend a lot of time and effort uh, to develop something that is uh, <laughs> useful and valuable to our to our customers. But I think you're I think you're exactly right. And 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 that really we've really seen this in. There are certain industries where we know that our materials could add very significant value, but that industry is incredibly risk adverse Mm. and they are just never going to be first adopters no matter how amazing this material could make their product it's just never going to happen and so what's been quite interesting from my perspective is to uh over time identify the markets that are less risk adverse and are are more willing to adopt new materials or take a risk on a new material and they're sometimes quite surprising Mm -hmm. um you know, for example, one that that absolutely i mean you could have knocked me over with a feather is I, I would have assumed that that rail and railways would be quite conservative uh, would be a quite conservative industry um and that has turned out to not really be true. so we're we're constantly learning about the market, about the demand and about the risk tolerance of our of our hopeful customers, right potential customers
0: and that's what you just described. I think you could use the exact same um comparison for the energy transition and like all industry, right? Mm-hmm. And there are so we have solutions, we have great solutions. And you've got the first adopters and the folks that are just very out there making commitments, trying to do everything. And then you've got the folks that are saying, you guys go learn and test every single thing. And mm-hmm. once it is perfectly normal, then we'll get mm-hmm. into the game. But then you throw the urgency of, climate of the energy transition of what we're trying to do into the mix. And so it is really interesting to see who who the players are who come forward, who are willing to try things. And that a lot of times it's not necessarily at all about climate. It's about another problem that they have. And they're really looking mm-hmm. for a creative solution that they're not finding anywhere. And so that's where the kind of climate tech innovation ecosystem is so cool to me because you're solving multiple problems at once, mm-hmm. right? It's not just one thing. And I feel like you guys kind of have that similar story of you, you were over here and like you're finding um, how all of the things, all of the opportunities can come together and just who's going to be the first, who's going to be the first to push it forward.
3: I also, I also think that we have found a very happy home in this space because the the urgency drives capital and that capital is slightly more patient mm-hmm. and, you know, the stuff that we're doing is complicated, it's complex, it's, it's new, it's innovative, it hasn't been done before, and that means that it takes time, right? And for our materials to really be out there and be widely adopted, we need to be producing them on pretty significant scales. And that takes a lot of time and energy and effort to, to stand up. You can't do that overnight, right? And so we are quite thankful that in this space, more and more, we're seeing that the capital is patient over five to Mm -hmm. seven to 10 year time horizons in a way that there just wasn't as much of that capital in the ecosystem five years ago.
1: Yeah. Yeah, And that's one thing Houston likes is thinking about how do we take this thing and make it big and do big processes. And so I I can see how the, the patient capital is also waiting for you guys. And then when it's time to make that billion dollar factory, they'll be like, here you go. (laughs) <laughs> show us how how it's done
3: but we well, need it right. earlier yeah i think that's the i think mm-hmm. that's the critical because you know you were talking about the eco space here in houston and you know at the se- when we're talking really small quantities of money we're talking seed money mm-hmm. you know under two million there that space is quite active we've seen mm-hmm. and then just as you mentioned jason like as soon as you're talking you know uh, industrial scale, everyone's there to put their money, and at that point, you kind of have revenue. So you, you, you know, you have the combination of income sources at that point. It's the time period in between mm. that's a little difficult because you're really making that jump from lab scale or prototype or really concept to pilot to 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 you know setting up a line to to getting spools in our case of our material off of our pilot line and. That, that A to B series space, I think, um, is where, you know, if I were to have a wish list, right, I would wish that maybe the capital here in Houston were a little bit more focused on on, on enabling that jump so that you had more startups that could actually scale to meet demand. And I think that's something that we
0: see, um we see a lot, and that it's it is especially difficult in energy and climate tech, because what you're doing is really capital intensive, even in the early stages, and that we the the capital that we have here is looking for really large projects that they can take global. Mm -hmm. And who's going to be doing the educating, right? Is it your job? Who should be stepping in? Um, And then you can also say, well, should we be going should we be outsourcing? Should Should Houston be doing more to bring other folks into Houston to look at our technologies? Um, and I think it's it's a bit all of the above, mm-hmm. right?
1: You were gonna say something. No, no, go ahead, Jason. Uh, so you know, you made a decision when you um, started the company to stay in Houston as opposed to going to places where maybe the Series A capital might be, you know, more available.
2: But- what what made you stay in Houston? To be honest, Jason, I don't think that I uh, knew how to spell Series A when I started. It's <laughs> <laughs> a good answer. If I can if I could stand up here today and tell you that I had that level of foresight when I started mm. the startup, I'd be I'd be lying. <laughs> yeah. But no. So really, what what made me stay and and Alex uh, and Justin both agreed is that Houston is not like Silicon Valley in the sense that there is way more hard manufacturing mm-hmm. out here um, people here are companies here and and facilities look at the amount of machine shops that there are right this is about actually building industrial equipment this this is a place where industrial manufacturing is you know high on the list um, primarily because of energy right mm-hmm. I mean I still remember when I was in in high school with in a, in a French high school, and I told people, I'm going to Rice for undergrad. Where's Rice? Houston, Texas. Oh, what? You're going to be a cowboy or something <laughs> was what I heard. It's like, no. Okay, listen. Like there's like NASA, the largest <laughs> med center in the world. It's energy capital of the world, right? But these are all, you know, again, it's not software. This is a lot of hard tech mm-hmm. and that supporting infrastructure and more more than anything, supporting services is a huge boon. Additionally, I think that if we were trying to stand up a pilot facility that uses the kind of solvents we are using and carbon nanotubes in California, it would have taken us a little bit longer. Mm-hmm.
3: That being said, though, our capital is not from Texas. True. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it comes from the coasts. Mm-hmm. It comes from abroad. And and I think that's, that's the rub. Mm-hmm. That's part of that. Like,
0: I think our ecosystem isn't... Uh, fully baked yet, right? Mm -hmm. But then also, why, given the zoomification of everything during the pandemic, should it be so geographically focused? Like We keep going back to that because ecosystems at the end of the day are are tied to a place, Mm -hmm. but capital isn't, Mm -hmm.
3: right? It isn't, but if you think about investing in an early stage startup, right? You're investing in the tech, but By and large, you're investing in the team Mm -hmm. and there is something to be said for having your capital in a location that allows you to interact with them frequently and over time, Mm -hmm. right? Because then they get to know you, they get to know your team dynamics and it can instill that confidence in them that is harder to instill over Zoom. I'm not going to lie, right? Um, And I I think that would be great for us, uh, you know?
1: I, I always found it surprising how much my angel investors would like to pop in and visit. Yes. And I think that's that that is a significant yeah. part of their decision is can I drive and see you? We
2: yeah. Tell, we we have tell physical... them we, we tell them we have dangerous chemicals outside.
3: They <laughs> <don't>. Yeah, <laughs> they don't want to come and visit <laughs> us. But you know, we, we have a we have a physical manufacturing <laughs> yeah. presence. Like one of the things that we do frequently for for our prospective investors is to give them a, a quote unquote mm. tour of our facility. Mm-hmm. But it's not the same. it's not real. You can't touch it. you can't mm-hmm. see it with your own eyes there's a There's a level of distance that's imposed by it through the like the virtual setup mm-hmm. that is hard is hard to overcome.
2: yeah, people who drive out to make the drive to come out and see us because we are about an hour located an hour north of Houston usually always walk away being like wow, I can't believe this is like out in the country. Like this is really, we're out in Cleveland, Texas. Mm-hmm. But that's, I think that's really one, one of the strengths, Uh, you know, th- this this state. Like we were able to just get our commercial building license stood up in no time, get registered with, you know, TCEQ for hazardous waste disposal in no time, right? Um. Not going to speak to the right or wrong of this approach mm-hmm. versus California. I'm just going to say from our standpoint, it was... This was really, really um, it was it could have been a lot harder, let's mm-hmm. put it that way.
3: Yeah, when you're cast strapped, it it yeah, it does help.
2: Yeah.
0: So, so this exact your your California comparison came up in a conversation yesterday. And I was I was trying to show both sides. Like there are two sides of this coin, right? Um that there are lots of cons to some of Texas's regulatory or lack thereof. <laughs> yeah. <secondisms. laughs> Um, and that has led to a history of certain industries being able to grow really quickly. Um, and there's good and bad with that. but mm-hmm. the, the flip side also is that you are seeing new industries being able to grow mm-hmm. really quickly here and and it just comes down to me to this like disconnect in people's heads about what Houston is about what's going on here, mm-hmm. right like they probably have not heard of Cleveland, Texas, many right. people. Um, and and how to get, the capital that we have here into a more early stage, right? Lots of private equity, lots of folks who have been in traditional energy and it looks and feels different and it acts Mm -hmm. different. Or how do you convince the folks that are in the Bay area that are in Silicon Valley that are in New York, like come to Houston, like, should we have a road show? Should we be bringing Mm -hmm. people here? (laughs) Like the rodeo is coming up soon. It's a lovely time of Mm -hmm. year. Like to get them to say, Hey, I want to come down and, and see all of these things because think that might open some doors as well
2: absolutely absolutely and as long as we don't bring them here during the summer months right um, (laughs) right you know rodeo is a great time for it who doesn't love mutton busting oh Oh. exactly
0: and when (laughs) they even learn what mutton busting (laughs) is exactly
1: (laughs) one of you you must describe what mutton busting is for those of us this is the hidden gem of houston it really is it really is look forward to it every year
2: take toddlers well toddlers (laughs) young kids (laughs) <laughs> strap them to a mutton, a sheep, right? And then just send the sheep off into the arena, kicking and screaming. Well, no, they don't scream, right? <laughs> they bay. Ble- baying, bleeding. Bleeding, yeah. Bleeding, <laughs> yeah. And
0: bleeding not bleeding. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly,
2: exactly.
3: <laughs> I know, I just, I, I just, so like... They're like in there, like little ticks. They're like, they
2: just like
0: a hell out yeah. of the
2: back these yeah.
3: sheep. I just, I they love it so get, much. They
2: can get kicked off pretty, oh, uh, yeah. you know, pretty harshly. And they're so
3: proud when they win. Oh, yeah. It's just, I mean, it just makes your heart proud. I mean, it makes your heart they, explode. They do get helmets.
0: Yes. Yes, they do. <laughs> yeah, that's true, that's <laughs> true. <laughs> <There's> clarification. Right.
1: <laughs> that, that, that is, it, it's amazing how many uh, of those I can watch and it won't ever get old. Oh, yeah. Oh yeah. Every so time. I would recommend,
0: for mm-hmm. sure. Um okay so another question you talked about deep tech tough tech said climate tech mm-hmm. carbon tech
3: mm-hmm.
0: what do you guys consider yourselves and and how does carbon play into conversation um with things like the IRA with with mm-hmm. when we talk about um not just like emissions reduction but we're going to capture all of this carbon a lot of focus
3: is is what can we do creatively with carbon mm-hmm. So, so I mean, correct me if you disagree with this, but I would say that we think of ourselves as being in deep tech, mm-hmm. um, predominantly because of the time horizons around our our scale up mm-hmm. um, and the fact that our materials are frontier breaking, right so so I, I think that's how we think of ourselves um, with an overlay of climate it's It's very important to us as a team um, on a personal level, mm-hmm. so whether or not uh, we consider ourselves part of climate tech, uh, we look at everything through a climate lens for sure.
2: Carbon, yeah, I mean, deep tech for sure because of you know the nature of what we're doing, but also the applications and the markets that we're going into. Right? I mean, you know, it's not we're, we haven't yet come up with a good you know B 2 C model mm-hmm. for bringing carbon nanotubes to market, and mm-hmm. I don't think we will for some time. Um, but the other, to your point about carbon. Um, you know, we, we we touched on, you know, the sustainable aspects upstream of us, namely always keeping our ear to the ground for sustainably what we like to call sustainably sourced carbon nanotubes, mm-hmm. either because they come from an agricultural waste stream or because they're the byproduct of, you know, methane pyrolysis, like you know, carbon black turned into carbon. The Fancy. Nanotubes.
3: the fancy, more scientific way of explaining what I said before. <laughs> <Yeah>. Well,
2: yes. <laughs> the, those, are, those are all the that's right, the, all the upstream segments, but in, in almost every application that we're looking at downstream of us, there is a net benefit mm-hmm. in the forms of making a system lighter or more energy- efficient, right? The E.V. motor coils mm-hmm. is a very good example. Um, overhead transmission lines is another right Mm -hmm. people reinforcing it with ceramic fiber well ceramic fiber is an electrical insulator Mm -hmm. so that's great for the immediate near-term safety concern of having your line sag below the sag safety limit but you just sacrificed a whole bunch of the cross-sectional area of your electrical conductor by adding an insulator
1: and and so what i'm hearing is is policy policies can influence upstream the actual production of the nanotubes, but. More so it'll affect how people deploy technology and and, and that that's yeah. part of driving demand yes. absolutely
3: absolutely, and I think one of the things that we struggle with a little bit today um, not only is if we're looking at time horizons of seven to ten mm. years, <clears throat> what is the regulatory environment in this space going to look like at that time? What are we shooting for because if we're designing a twenty first century material you know it we need, to, we need to future-proof it, right? Mm-hmm. We should be aiming for what's gonna be the standard in 20 years, not what is the standard around climate today. Um, and I think that one of the things that we struggle with most is around um, how people think about carbon capture and carbon, s- carbon storage, mm-hmm. because our materials are, are a functional form of carbon storage. Mm-hmm. When, when, when you use our material, you have carbon that is in a stored state. Right? And not only that, but our materials are fully recyclable. Mm-hmm. Like you can put it back through our process uh, with no degradation of properties, unlike plastic, which is mm-hmm. you know recyclable to a certain extent. And so I think that right now our view around carbon to value, the circular economy, uh, s- carbon capture and storage is, is narrow and limited. And we're really excited to see an aperture In this view happen over the next couple of years um, because i think it'll really let carbon-based materials shine um, and really highlight the value that we bring Mm -hmm. yeah
2: if we talked about turning it into diamond no one would bat an eye and see the value right away right to your point about letting it shine Carbon nanotubes is going to be. I like be your a, pun. Yeah. <laughs> Ni- nice one.
3: <laughs> Very nicely done.
2: Carbon. Yeah, that, that would be like the easiest way to get the point across, right? <laughs> that we can do so much with carbon. It's it's an incredibly, you know, versatile atom, the backbone of you know life mm-hmm. as we know it. Um, but it's easier to wrap your head around diamond, I mm-hmm. think, than it is to wrap your head around carbon nanotubes. Um and, and that's that's where we're where we're working to you know change by showing people letting them feel it and see mm-hmm. what it can do in a product in one of their, you know, existing product lines.
0: Materials are really hard because policy right now is very focused on the energy that you use and really the source, a little bit more around transportation, but that really goes back to the energy and the fuel and And materials often get left out of the conversation same thing with like the built environment even though those are the things that you and I interact with on a daily basis that there's an incredible health implication of all of these things mm-hmm. but but that gets into just like several layers harder of things that people understand and I think also we tend to and this is a this is a Houston thing I think because our energy industry has been so used to developing fuels putting them in something a truck, a pipeline, mm-hmm. giving them to someone else that when we think about carbon, we kind of want it to be the same way, right? Mm-hmm. We want to put it underground. We want pipelines. We want, we want very technical, pressurized, um, takes the same kind of expertise that we excel in. So then when you think about, well, what else could we do? And when, to your point, you really could do... So much. Uh, like... With carbon. The, the options could be exponential, right? Mm-hmm. We've not traditionally looked into that. And so it has this kind of like new factor, not necessarily bad, but like a question mark, an unknown, and and I I like that because I want Houston to understand, like, grab hold of that and be like, "Ooh, we can mm-hmm. do this, right? It is all of the same things that we have been doing. It's just like tweaking it a little bit, mm-hmm. but at the same time, having unlimited possibilities can be really uh, scary and like overwhelming." And so I'm excited to see how you guys are like navigating that path of picking picking the things that move forward. Yeah. I mean from your lips to our investors
3: ears. <laughs>
1: <laughs> but but I think that speaks to part of the education I like it's educating the market, but it's also in some ways educating the Houston ecosystem that that there is, you know, alternative ways to participate in the energy transition and and I think that's the, that's an important part of the work you guys are doing is, you know, showing, you know, pioneering and, and showing the leadership of uh, energy transition doesn't just mean making a new type of fuel. I think that, that's, that's what mm-hmm. Laura is saying. That we like
0: is, taking things
3: out of the ground and we like putting them back into the ground. Yeah, But right? let's,
1: let's do something different. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I <laughs>
3: think I just that's the think. natural evolution of thinking about a problem. Yeah. Right? Because when you first started it, you know, you're, you're, you're looking very narrowly at the problem. And as you start addressing it, just by nature, the the window starts getting wider mm. and wider around what you know, factors into that problem, right? And as you start to get further out, you you come into some really impactful, really creative solutions. And I think that we're just early in that process, Mm -hmm. right? And, And being here in Houston and participating in these conversations, and to your point, you know... Taking the invitations to speak, taking mm-hmm. the invitations to be on these types of podcasts and other presentations and, and educating anyone who wants to listen about this, right? We feel like we're in our own small way contributing to this and, and moving this forward in, in, in a small way.
2: One of the very first openers we used to have in our the earliest form of our pitch deck, which I hope we'll never again see the light of day.
3: <laughs> no, nope, very deep, very deep in the ground. <laughs> yeah,
2: exactly. We we usually start by, you know, materials make up everything. Mm-hmm. And it's such a it's such a platitude, right? Mm-hmm. Like everything is made of something is another one. But it's it's so true, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, like you you need to look at the entire upstream and downstream of your product to understand what it's made of and then when you can no longer use this product what it's made of where does that go Mm -hmm. right what happens to it and it all comes down to the materials of construction Mm -hmm.
3: 20 years ago the the you know companies were not tracking their supply chains they weren't re- like public companies weren't obligated to report on their supply chains no one was mm-hmm. looking at you know the 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 state of labor at your suppliers mine in you know an unknown country and today mm. there are reporting obligations around that and i think that one way that government at large not just houston or private actors but like government at large could help encourage some of this transition is to require more disclosure and more reporting and maybe put some tighter guidelines Mm. around that reporting, Uh, you know, to to get that information out there to the public so the public can make an informed choice when they're making purchases, right, because we know that demand drives, Mm -hmm. Um, but also so that companies are thinking about this and are factoring it into their decision-making in a way that they really just aren't today. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. All right, so one of my favorite
0: questions Talking about uh, technology and innovation um, can cover a really, really broad, broad area. The sky is the limit. Um, what prehistoric or extinct flora or fauna <laughs> would you bring back if you could? There's a story behind this and why we asked this, but curious because I think you guys did some research. I think you've taken our homework to heart.
2: I did. Oh, I yes. Love the question. Yeah. Spent
3: a lot of time on this.
2: Do <laughs> you want to go first?
3: Uh, well, just because we, we were talking about this this morning before, before we started the podcast and it's really interesting because the choices that we made, I think are directly, like you can draw a direct uh, connection to why we are so passionate about woots from our own perspective. Mm-hmm. Um, so for me in particular, the one that I really like is passenger pigeons. Mm-hmm. So super mundane, but in the 1860s, here in the United States, there were billions of them, billions of them. They would mm-hmm. darken the sky, mm-hmm. right? And by 1914, there were no more. The last one died in a zoo. And over the course of about four decades, it went from billions to zero. And what I really love about this is I think that technology follows the same trajectory, mm-hmm. right? Uh, it goes from ubiquitous to extinct. Over decades, mm-hmm. um, for example, I was talking to my dad about fax machines and how prevalent this was <laughs> in his prime working years, and how today, I mean, God forbid you ask me to fax something, it would take me a whole day to find a fax machine, right? And I and I and I love this because I think it goes to show that uh, change is happening mm-hmm. on re- um, increasingly tight timescales, which is both exciting and concerning, depending on the lens through which you're looking.
1: I I love the idea of the passenger p- pigeons too because uh every time I've read a description it sounded like it was something beautiful that we also unfortunately removed from the world. Mm-hmm. And it would be it would be fantastic to bring that back. Um but it, it is that the, there is that evolutionary nature of technology where where things do get get wiped out but we have the opportunity to
2: roll it back. That's, we do. that's yes. That's kind of what makes it interesting. Exactly. Yeah. And I'm wrong. Um I fascinated by the 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 flora side mm-hmm. primarily, you know, um, sil- silphium would be mm. my pick is a type of, uh, flower that went extinct during the Roman, uh, mm. empire, but back in the day, it was used for, to treat all kinds of, uh, illnesses. And I know there's, there's a lot of other plants that fit into that category, but think for a moment, this one was talked about by the Romans as being worth its weight in gold. Mm. It was printed on currency. Right. Emperor Nero was proud to have allegedly been fed the last stalk of silphium. And, you know, 70 percent of all cancer drugs used today are based in one way, shape or form on a naturally occurring molecule because there is no greater creator. Right. I mean, we can do combinatorial chemistry ad infinitum. The variety and the complexity of molecules that you find in the natural world is, is almost endless. So if we could only just you know imagine if we could bring that back that m- mm. such a multifunctional plant back and take a modern stab at it what what benefits could we get and also you know wouldn't it be nice to have those yellow colored mm. allegedly yellow colored flowers gold colored <laughs> flowers you know popping all over the hills of Tuscany mm-hmm.
0: Hills of Tuscany, hills of Texas. Hills of Texas. <laughs> Although we we can't take out the blue bonnet. You're right, right. You're right. So it can't
2: displace blue bonnets.
0: Um, I love that you mentioned Nero. I actually I love all things old. I was an ancient history and classical civilizations major. I wanted to nice. be Indiana Jones. I love dinosaurs and and like <laughs> in a weird way, it's because I truly believe that history repeats itself, and that mm. if we don't learn from what happened, we will. We will do it again, and so let's try to do it better, mm-hmm. right? And you see that so much in innovation, right? Um, the difference between invention and innovation, like taking something that you said you came—there um, were many people before you that helped your company and your technology kind of get to where you are. Mm-hmm. The important part is like tweaking that and ha- and seeing an enormous jump forward in efficiency, in opportunities. And so you have to look back as yeah. well, right? That's a really important part. And and I don't know. Oftentimes, if we think about that enough, that even if you think about the energy transition, like this isn't our first transition, it probably won't be our last. <laughs> mm-hmm. This Hopefully. is not a box that we're going to check and be like, sure. "Oh, we decarbonized, done." Right? <laughs> we we need no no new technology. No, it has to keep going constantly. Mm-hmm. And I also love the idea of some of the solutions we probably had before, and and we we let them go. Right? Uh, there could be a solution. From a plant somewhere that we had that would solve things going forward. And so it's like a weird, circlical, circlical, cyclical, cyclical, circular. Yeah. There we go. Making <laughs> up, <laughs> the Texan in me Got makes yeah. up words <laughs> yeah. sometimes that aren't real. Um, that what's old is new again. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I love that idea.
1: Yeah. So I think uh, we're running low on time, so we need to wrap. What is one thing our audience could do to support you? How like, can we help you? C- are you
0: looking for staff? Are you looking for funding? Are you looking for partners? I mean,
3: all all of the above. <laughs> if I had an infinite wish list, those would all be in like the top ten for sure. Um, you know we uh, we are going to be raising our Series A in Q two of this year, so right around the corner. Um, So we are definitely looking for investors who are interested in supporting this, this change and this material innovation that we are trying to bring to market. Mm -hmm. Um, But beyond that, you know, once we raise our series A, we will also be hiring, we have a very small team now. And We were joking this morning with you guys that uh, really what we need right now is to clone ourselves for zero dollars because we have way more work than we could ever possibly do with the size team that we have today. So, you know, one of the things is if you're interested in this space, if you're interested in carbon nanotubes, if you want to be part of something really cool... You know we're going to be hiring in the near future, and we would love to we would love to hear from people because we're a little bit daunted by the prospect of ha- having to hire all these incredible people on the time frame that we set for ourselves. So, how can investors or potential employees find you? So, we obviously have a web page. It's uh wootsnano.com We are also on LinkedIn. You can contact myself, Olivia S B Huntington. Uh, Amram Bengio or Alex Marks. We also have, um, if you email info at wootsnano.com, one of us will also get back to you. Um, Also, we are at Greentown Labs pretty frequently. We are at the ION pretty frequently. We are also at RICE pretty frequently. So you can just pull us aside and say hi. (laughs) (laughs) Um, Also, important question that I didn't
0: ask. Woots, where did the name come from?
2: That is, this is going to get your your material science nerd (laughs) Going, Jason. Um, it's it's a bit of a homage to uh, an ancient form of, of steel. I don't know if you've ever heard of Damascus steel. People who've watched Game of Thrones will, you know, think of Valyrian steel. Um, but five to six hundred years before Damascus steel even came about, there was uh, another form of crucible steel that was made in the Far East in modern-day Sri Lanka. And the British were the ones who mistranslated, it was originally called Wuku and mistranslated it to Wootz. Now, Wootz steel is a bit of a modern mystery, almost like the kind of pyramids, because while modern metallurgists understand how you know, during the Islamic Caliphate, Damascus steel was formed, we still don't have the full picture understanding of how using contemporary technology, they were able to create Wootz steel. Um, And so it's this, you know, steel is an alloying of iron and carbon done in a very specific obviously very specific way um and they were able to achieve yeah super material properties using ancient technology
3: so a little bit of magic there and i think we have really embraced that um so we like to think of ourselves as being the combination of expertise state of the art equipment and magic mm-hmm. I love magic. I love (laughs) ancient
0: conspiracy theories that may (laughs) involve aliens, which is going to be another podcast.
2: (laughs) The aliens, ancient mysteries with Laura.
0: Love it. Okay, thank you so much.